In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in its according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures in every living thing that moves, which were the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. 
also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus all the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come. Father, we thank you for your creation. We praise you, Lord, for your creation, Father, that you have given it to us for uh, us to enjoy, Lord, but you have given it to us for us to be good stewards of. Father, may you just open our hearts, and as Jim mentioned this morning, open our ears. Be with Pastor Bruce as he brings your word. We give you praise and honor this day. In your name I pray. Amen. Stephen Hawking, who died just this last month, was a scientist and professor of mathematics at Cambridge University. He's also the author of the international bestseller, A Brief History in Time. And coincidentally, he is now made famous predominantly by a certain TV show called The Big Bang Theory. On March the 13th, 2007, Dr. Hawking delivered a lecture on the origin of the universe at the University of California at Berkeley. And during that lecture, Hawking discussed the fact that most scientists now agree that the universe is not eternal and that it had an origin at some point. And in offering his explanation for the beginning of the universe, Stephen Hawking said these words, and I quote, if, generally, if general relativity is combined with quantum theory, it may be possible to predict how the universe would start. It would initially expand at an ever-increasing rate. During this so-called inflationary period, the marriage of the two theories predicted that small fluctuations would develop and lead to the formation of galaxies, stars, and all the other structure in the universe. This is confirmed by observations of small non-uniformities in the cosmic microwave background with exactly the predicted properties. So it seems we are on our way to understanding the origin of the universe, though much more work will be needed. In a very stark contrast, both in substance and in simplicity, the Word of God begins by explaining the origin of the universe this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus, Genesis chapter 1 lays the foundation for the rest of God's word. It also lays the foundation for our lives as well. Here we find in the book of Genesis the answers to some very profound questions. Where did we come from? How did we get here? And why are we here? And these questions matter for what you believe impacts your life. Creation leads in one direction, and it pro produces a particular worldview. 
And evolution leads in a whole other direction and produces a different worldview with a different set of values. If you believe that you came from nothing and that you go to nothing and that there is no purpose to your life and you are left with nothing but despair. Scientific rationalism leaves us without a soul, without a purpose in meeting in life. And so in this marketplace of ideas, there are not many ideas that matter more than how you view the first chapter of God's Word. Is Genesis chapter 1 true? Or not? Did these things actually happen that we just saw on the screen? Is this just an ancient myth instead of actual history? Or to borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, is Genesis 1 true truth and not just, quote, religious truth? I do not assume that everyone here in this auditorium today believes that Genesis 1 is literal historical truth from God himself. And so the question before us this morning is really quite simple. Is Genesis chapter 1, is it fact or is it fable? Can we take Genesis 1 literally and believe what it says, believe what God says in his word about the creation of the universe? In fact, I would put forth to you that if Genesis 1 is not true, then the whole Bible is unreliable. If what is written in Genesis 1 cannot be trusted then everything written in God's Word is up for grabs. If there's no Garden of Eden, how can you be sure there was an Adam and Eve? And if there's no Adam, then how can we trust what Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But if Adam is only a myth, how can we be sure Christ is real? Perhaps he is a myth too. If Adam and Eve never existed, then what about Noah and the flood? And if there's no Noah, how can we take seriously what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 37? As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is the importance of the book of Genesis. And in particular, the importance of Genesis chapter 1. If we take away the Garden of Eden, and there is no need for the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about it. The story of creation leads to Adam and Eve, which leads to the serpent who tempts them to sin, which leads to the seed of the woman, which leads to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And as Christ followers, all that we believe about God's story of redemption, which begins in Genesis 1 and takes itself all the way through Revelation chapter 22, 
hangs in the balance of Genesis 1 through 11. And Satan knows that full well, which is why Genesis 1, the creation account, according to Genesis, is attacked so relentlessly. One of the best arguments for interpreting Genesis literally is that Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul both took Genesis literally as well. Both of them quote from Genesis 1 and 2 in the Gospels and New Testament. So if both Jesus and Paul took Genesis 1 and 2 as literal historical truth from God, then we have confidence to do the same as well. Author Kent Hughes writes, There is no question that the Genesis creation account is written as history, and that this is the way that every biblical author who looks back to it treats it. Thus, Francis Schaeffer writes in his book, Genesis in Time and Space, the mentality of the whole scripture is that creation is as historically real as the history of the Jews in our present moment of time. Both the Old and New Testaments deliberately root themselves back into the early chapters of Genesis, insisting that they are a record of historical events. Now, there are many people, though, today who doubt the Genesis creation account because of, quote, modern science. Most people in the scientific world are committed to the theory of evolution. And while evolution is considered a fact, it is not a fact, it is a theory. Philip Johnson, former law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a critic of evolutionary science, writes in Evolution as Dogma, and I quote his words, what science educators propose to teach us evolution and label as fact is based not upon any incontrovertible, get that word out there sometime in the next five minutes, empirical evidence, that is scientifically proven facts, but upon a highly controversial philosophical presupposition. In other words, here's what he's saying. What is taught as evolutionary fact is often the teaching of a humanistic faith, not necessarily anchored in science at all, but in the presupposition of its teachers. Evolution is not a science. Science deals with something that is repeatable in the laboratory, but nobody can repeat the creation account in which we just read. They can only theorize about what might have happened at the creation of the world. Some scientists are now openly admitting this reality. One Swedish botanist by the name of Dr. Herbert Nielsen wrote, my attempts to demonstrate evolution by experiment carried on for more than 40 years have completely failed. It may be firmly maintained that it is not possible to find or construct new classes or species. Deficiencies are real. They will never be filled. The idea of an evolution rests on pure belief. Perhaps some of you are wondering here, is the Bible in conflict with science? 
The answer is no. Summarizing Francis Schaeffer's book, No Final Conflict, he says, he writes, here's his words, when all the facts are in, when the Bible has been fully understood and silence, science has finally reached the truth, in that day it will be seen that there is no final conflict between the Bible and science. Since all truth is God's truth, there can be no ultimate conflict between God's creation and God's word. Ultimately, you cannot prove or disprove creation by science. There are, however, many, many fabulous, wonderful scientific discoveries in creation that point us to a creator. As Paul states in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Thus, we can study creation. We can observe creation. We can look at creation as a marvelous source of revelation compatible with and expounded upon by the more certain and more specific revelation of God's written word. Here's the point. The only one who can tell us what happened at creation of the world is God. He was the only one who was there. And he tells us in Genesis chapter 1, what took place. Through the account, through the revelation of God and his written word to us, which is our authority, we discover things about creation. And from the Genesis account, we can discover four truths here about creation. Notice number one, we discover the source of creation. The first thing we discover in Genesis 1 is the source or the cause of creation. Verse 1 says very clearly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, is telling us that creation did not involve a process, an evolutionary process, but a person. It was not a big bang that produced the universe, but rather a big God. The first verse of the Bible clearly reveals that God is the source of everything that exists. The universe was not produced by mysterious, unexplained forces. It was produced by an almighty, powerful God. In his book, The Amazing Universe, Herbert Friedman, who was an evolutionist and the chief scientist for space research at the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory, writes, and I quote, no matter how far we push back the veil of ignorance to reveal the existing universe, we shall always be stumped by the basic issue, what lies behind creation. If you believe in God and you believe in his word, the mystery of creation is solved. We might not fully know all that happened. We might not fully know how it all happened, 
But we know who made it happen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what means did God use to create the universe? Well, notice this in your notes. By the power of his word, God supernaturally created the universe. Did you notice when Dane read the passage here in Genesis 1 that the phrase, then God said, then God said, then God said. In fact, that phrase, then God said, is repeated nine times in Genesis chapter 1. What was the supernatural force God used to create the universe? It was very simply the word of God. God spoke and the universe came into existence. Astonishing. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Psalm chapter 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9 says, For he, that is God, spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Again, quoting Francis Schaeffer, he writes, Here is power beyond all that we can imagine in the human finite realm. God was able to create the heavens and the earth merely by his spoken word. Now just think about that for a moment. The only tool God used in creation was his word. Then God said, when I speak, it is not nearly as effective. When my boys were young and I said, guys, it's time for bed, it did not always translate to them going to bed. When I'm standing on the tee box playing golf and I say to Bill, who's my golf partner, Bill, I think I'm going to hit a 250-yard drive right down the middle of the fairway. Bill looks at me with this little grin on his face. And uh, you know what? I wind up, I swing, I hit it, and it doesn't always wind up in the middle of the fairway. In fact, most of the time, it ends up hitting a tree out of bounds. But when God spoke, things happened, and the universe came into existence. I love how an old black preacher describes it. God stepped behind the curtain of nowhere, stood on the platform of nothing, and spoke the world into existence. The sun started shining. The moon started glowing. The stars started to glitter. Then God painted the sky blue without using a stepladder. God gave the hyena its laugh, the worm its wiggle, and the bee its buzz. He put the stripes on the zebra, spots on the leopard, and taught the kangaroo how to hop. And nobody said a word. And the reason nobody said a word is because there was no one there to say anything. So God himself said, that's good. The first truth we discover in the Genesis creation account is that the source of creation is God. The second truth we discover is the scope of creation. The scope. And what was the scope of God's creation? Well, Moses does not leave us guessing. Moses is very specific when he writes again in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that's just a Hebrew way of saying 
God created everything. Since the Hebrew language has no word for universe. The heavens and the earth is a phrase signifying the whole universe. God created absolutely everything there is in all the universe. And let me tell you, the earth is big. It sits in a big universe. In fact, we don't even know how big it is. But on October 19th, back in 2009, European astronomers announced the discovery of 32 new planets that are just a few times larger than Earth, orbiting stars just outside of our solar system. The Earth is part of the Milky Way galaxy. And if you could count the billions of stars in our galaxy and were able to count one star per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count them all. The Whirlpool galaxy is some 31 million light years away. And every second, a new star is formed in that galaxy. And according to Psalms 147, verse 4, God determines the number of the stars, and he calls them each by name. No wonder Psalm 90, 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And notice, God's handiwork was created out of nothing. Notice this in your notes. God created the heavens and the earth, the entirety of the universe, and everything in it out of nothing. In fact, that word created that we have here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is a special word reserved in Scripture for the distinctive work of God himself. This word means to create out of nothing. The technical term is ex nihilo. Man can take existing things. Man can take those existing things and put them together in a very creative way. He can make things, he can form things, but he cannot, quote, create things. Only God can, quote, create. The difference between God and man is the difference between a creator and a carpenter. Aaron Wayne is sitting back there. He's a carpenter. You see, Aaron can take something, and he can make something else with it. And if you ever ask him, to, Aaron, let me see some things you've created, and he has pictures on his phone, he's very good. Beautiful stuff he's made. He can make something out of something, but Aaron can't make something out of nothing. Only God has the power to create something out of nothing. We can't do this. So we can't even imagine how God does this. The only word for this, by the way, is a miracle. It happens supernaturally. God supernaturally created the heavens and the earth by the very power of his spoken word. Just think what that tells us about the power, wisdom, and glory of God. What an awesome creator our God is. Several years ago, a scientist by the name of Abraham Morrison wrote a book called Seven Reasons Why a Scientist Believes in God. Here are his seven reasons. Number one, consider the rotation of the earth. Our globe spins on its axis at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour. If it were just 100 miles an hour, our days and nights would be 10 times as long. The vegetation would freeze in the long night, or it would burn in the long day, and there could be no life. Second reason, consider the heat of the sun. 
12,000 degrees at surface temperature, and we're just far enough away to be blessed by that terrific heat. And isn't it beautiful this weekend we have? If the sun gave off half its radiation, we would freeze to death. If it gave off one, gave off one half more, we would all be crispy critters. Third the reason. Consider the 23-degree slant of the earth. If it were different than that, the vapors from the ocean would ice over continents. There would be no life. Consider the moon as a fourth reason. If the moon were 50,000 miles away rather than its present distance, twice each day, giant tides would inundate every bit of landmass on this earth. Fifth reason, consider the crust of the earth. Just a little bit thicker and there could be no life because there would be no oxygen. Sixth reason, consider the thinness of the atmosphere. If our atmosphere was just a little thinner, the millions of meteors now burning themselves out in space would plummet this earth into oblivion. And then finally, the fact that man is capable of grasping the idea of the existence of God is in, in itself sufficient evidence. He concluded by saying this, these are reasons why I believe in God. The second truth we discover in the Genesis creation account is the scope of creation that God created is the heavens and the earth, the entire universe and everything in it. The third discovery we find here in the Genesis account is the sequence of creation. The sequence of creation. Verse 1 tells us God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 tells us about this initial state of creation. Look what he says here. Moses writes, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Moses now puts the spotlight on earth. So understand, verse 1, it's the universe. Verse 2, he is lasering in on planet earth here. And what we see is that the earth was without form. That is, it lacked boundaries. The earth was void. It lacked inhabitants. And the earth was covered in darkness. And so that tells us that it lacked light. And so verse 2 pictures the earth before God prepared it for human beings. It was unformed, it was unfashioned, and it was uninhabited. The very opposite of what the earth would be after the six days of creation. Now, how did this forming and shaping of the earth take place? Well, Moses tells us in verse 2. Look at the second part. It says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so God used the Holy Spirit to prepare the world for the human race. And since this is the first reference to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, ding, 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 we ought to clue in here. Moses, God himself, through Moses, is giving us an idea of what the Spirit will always do. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The Spirit is the one who forms and gives direction to our lives. And so isn't it interesting that already by verse 2 of God's Word, it's, we are seeing that salvation follows a similar pattern to what we find here. When God first comes to us, He finds our lives empty, 
and without shape or without purpose. And then God speaks into our lives, and his spirit moves upon us. This is what the Apostle Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, when he writes, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, God's ways of working in creation and salvation are similar. God comes to us. And in our darkness, in our emptiness, and in our hopelessness, his creative word brings life, born again by the Spirit of God. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so now, now get ready. Now we come to the sequence of creation. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Initially, the earth was unformed. It was unfashioned. It was uninhabited. But... In six days, God forms the earth, and then God fills the earth, thereby bringing order and beauty out of chaos and darkness. Now, in the 16th century, John Calvin said the issue wasn't how could God have created the world in six days. It was... Why did God take so long to create the world? Today, however, in the 21st century, the debate among many Christians is over the six days of creation. How long were these days of creation? Were they 24 hours long? Or were they long, long periods epics of time. The Bible tells us that over the course of six days, God created the heavens and the earth. However, there are some that view these days in the creation account not as 24 hours, but as epics or ages or vast periods of time. It is a view that is known as the day-age theory, and it allows for the theory of theistic evolution as a possibility as well. Now, to be very candid with you and to be upfront with you, I'll give you what I believe. My opinion, based on the evidence that I've read, seen in Scripture, and elsewhere, it is my opinion that the Bible is referring to literal 24 hours. Is it possible to find billions of years in the creation week, as some believe in the day-age theory? That's what some believe, but I believe that God created the universe in six 24-hour days marked by evenings and mornings. I will also share what else I believe about this. I believe the more literally you view Genesis chapter 1, the greater you view the sovereignty and supremacy of God in creation as well as in redemption. With that said, let's look at the sequence of creation. And what we see 
is that in six days, God called into existence a perfect, harmonious, and fruitful creation for human beings to live on. A quick read through Genesis 1 reveals that the six days of creation were perfectly divided, so that the first three days describe the forming of the earth, and the last three days describe the filling of the earth. You can see this in the chart in your notes and on the screen. You see that two sets of days are a direct echo in remedy to the opening statement that the earth was without form and void. And so the earth's formlessness is now remedied by its forming on days one through three. And the earth's emptiness was remedied by its filling on days four through six. There is also a, a remarkable correspondence between the first three days and the last three days. Day four corresponds to day one. Day five corresponds to day two. Day six corresponds to day three. And it's all beautiful. It's all orderly. On day one, light was created. And on the corresponding day four, there came the sun and the moon to rule the night. And on the corresponding day five, I mean, on day two, God created the expanse and he called, in, in that he called sky separating the waters from above and the waters below. And on the corresponding day five, what does God do? He fills the sky. He fills the waters with birds and fish. On day three, God separated the water and the dry land. And he created vegetation. And on the corresponding day six, God filled the land with animal life and he created man to rule over it all. And then, of course, on day seven, God rested, not because he was tired but because his work was fully done. God created the seven-day week as a pattern for us to follow. Six days to work, one day to rest. And so as we kind of stand back now from Genesis chapter 1, and we see this creation account here, and we reflect on it, and we consider this as just this remarkable creation story that boggles our mind and yet should direct us to how awesome our God is, here are four observations about creation. Number one, first, it is God's creation. Moses tells us in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made. And so make no mistake about it, this is God's creation. This means God is the rightful owner of all things, including you and me. And because God is the creator, listen to me, he is greater than his creation. This means God is sovereign. This means God is supreme over all things, including you and me. This is why some people, in my opinion, refuse to believe in the Genesis creation account. Evolution, for some people, is just an excuse to reject God's sovereignty and supremacy in their lives. People want to be their own God. People want to do their own things, go their own way, live their own life apart from a God, a God who created them, a God who reigns over them and is supreme. And if God created us, then that means we are accountable to him. And rejecting Genesis as myth will not change this truth. This also means that you cannot read Genesis 1 in purely scientific terms, or it will lead you astray. 
Again, this is why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Listen, there is a moral component to the creation-evolution debate. If you don't believe in God, you will have a hard time accepting a supernatural creation by a sovereign and supreme God. So this is God's creation. Number two, we learn that it was a good creation. What does God say about his creation? What adjective does God use to evaluate his creation? Good. Six times God declares his creation to be good. And when God finished his work on day six, he stepped back and he assessed what he had done. And indeed, he says it was very good. That word good, it means God's creation was beautiful. It means it was complete. It also means it was perfect in every way. It was fully mature producing and fulfilling what it was designed to do. God created a mature, fully functioning world that came out just as he wanted it to come out. Like most of you here, at least most of you guys, from time to time, I have to do some, quote, do-it-yourself projects around the house. And uh, sometimes I like to pride myself on my do-it-yourself project ability. But I have to admit, sadly, not everything I do is perfect. Some things have flaws. Some things have imperfections. And to be honest with you, Kirk, you look at him, you're like, whoa, who did that? Ooh, that was pretty bad. But God's creation was very good. And it was beautiful. And it was perfect. And it came out just as God wanted it to come out. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for everything God created is good and nothing, and nothing is to be rejected if, 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 if it's received with thanksgiving. So it is God's creation. It's a good creation. And number three, we see that it's now a groaning creation. Today in our world, diseases like cancer ravage bodies. Tornadoes demolish towns. Babies are born with defects. Families are fractured, and death is the norm. And so, yes, this is God's creation, and yes, it was a good creation, but it is now a groaning creation. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Do you hear it? Creation is groaning, and it's not a good groan. And it's groaning because of sin. According to Genesis 3, Adam sinned against God and brought us under the curse of sin. Did man cease to become God's image bearer after the fall? No, that's not the case. Even after the fall, man is still declared to be God's image. And although the image of God is not being eliminated, it has been severely marred, twisted. So the question, is there any hope for us? Yes. Say, well, how do we experience that hope in a groaning creation? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3.10 that we can be 
renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You say, how? Through Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1.15. So are you tired of groaning under the curse of sin in this world in which we live in? Then the answer, the hope, the solution is to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ and he will set you free. And know this, yes, this world we live in is now a groaning creation, but take heart because number four, it will again be a glorious creation. When Christ returns, there will be a glorious new creation of heaven and earth. John in a vision tells us in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And so everything will be restored to the way it was meant to be. Listen, the new earth will once again be the perfect home that God intended for his creation. This is why Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.13, but in keeping with this promise, the promise of a new creation, Peter says we are looking forward to something. And it ain't in this world, folks. We are looking forward to a new creation and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You want to live where righteousness dwells in a new creation? Then again, the answer is to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. This brings us now to the final truth we discover in the Genesis creation account. And that is the Savior of creation. The New Testament makes it clear that it is not just God the Father who created the universe. We are also told that Jesus was there creating the universe as well. When we read in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Who's John referring to? It's Jesus Christ. And John tells us in verses 1 through 2, with Jim read for us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then Jesus proclaims in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so what we discover here is that Jesus is the Savior of creation, which means... Get this, the God who created you is the Savior who died for you in order to redeem you. Jesus Christ is the perfect image bearer of God. The first Adam, Adam in Genesis chapter 2, that Adam brought the curse of sin. But Jesus Christ, which Paul refers to as the last Adam, came to earth to reverse the curse. You ever wonder why Jesus died on the cross and rise again? To remove this curse and redeem us from the bondage of that curse of sin. And so I ask again, are you tired of groaning under the curse of sin? Do you want to live in the new creation where righteousness dwells? And again, the answer is repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Genesis 1 unequivocally declares 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the question becomes, how do we respond to that? The first response here is to remember creation is a gift of God. Remember creation is a gift of God. Therefore, let us enjoy God's creation, but exalt the creator. We will look at this more next Sunday. But here's the temptation, and it's a temptation from Satan himself, is we worship creation. And we ignore the Creator when God wants us to do just the opposite. We are commanded to enjoy creation and exalt the Creator. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.17 that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Creation was given for our good, so enjoy creation. But this enjoyment of God's creation should drive us, should lead us to, should motivate us to worship the God of creation and not the creation. We read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So creation is a testimony to the greatness of God and to the glory of God. And so by all means, walk out of here and enjoy creation. But exalt the Creator. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for your word, your revelation to us here in Genesis chapter 1. That you are the creator, God. And we live in your creation. It's a good creation, but it's also a groaning creation. And Lord, as your redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ, we look forward to a glorious creation to come. Until then, Lord, we need your help. We need your grace to live out the mission that you've given to us to know you and to make you known here on this earth. And so, Lord, let your word penetrate our hearts. Let it convict us where need be. And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that you would, you would tug on their hearts and they would respond to you in saving faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Praise team's going to sing just one chorus here.